Well, good evening, everyone. <clears throat> We've come to the last two verses in the book of James as we continue our series throughout through that book. We've actually come to these two verses that are actually a hinge between this entire chapter or much of this chapter and the, the, all the themes that will follow. So we'll be looking again at James chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. Uh, you'll find that on page 10. 11, that is 1,011 if you're looking at a pew Bible. This is God's holy and errant word, so as always, let us give careful attention to it as it is being read. The word of God. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. A glorious heavenly Father, you have given us your word as a lamp unto our feet and a guide unto our path. It is by and through your word that we have learned of you, your character, your attributes, the things that you have desired and that you have required of us. And so we pray as we now read this particular text and comment on it and hear the preach word, your preach word that you would speak to our hearts concerning those things that you would have us to know, concerning those things that you would have us to act on, and concerning the, the ways that you would have us to be. We pray that you would enable us by the power of your spirit to hear your word and then to be doers of your word, all to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some time ago I was taught a well that a well-balanced Christian life consisted of three prongs. There are three prongs to a well-balanced Christian life. Having the right doctrine. God has revealed himself to us and he has revealed what is required of, that, of us. And that's his word. We are to foster the right feelings then. We are to love God with all our heart, all our mind, and all our strength. And we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. If our affections towards God or our fellow man is off, the wheels of society will fall off. And we see that even happening even around us now. The wheels of society are broken. And then, last but not least, we are to engage in the right practice. So we are to have the right doctrine, we are to have the right feelings, and we are to engage in the right practice. That is actionably living out our faith. Back then, it was argued that if any of these three prongs, when I heard this, and it was, first time I heard this was in seminary actually, it was argued that if any of these three prongs were lacking or missing in one's walk with Christ, then to one degree or another, it will affect the other two prongs. You'd be like a three-wheel tricycle with only two wheels just leaning to a side spiritually. James intimates as much in this section of scripture which starts off at verse 19. There he starts by theologically sharing information. That's doctrine. It's about man's sin-tainted anger and emotion and how it can never produce the type of behavior or the right practice that pleases God. And it's consistent with his nature. 
Now, although James is mindful of all three of these prongs and includes them here, his main focus in this passage and in this entire book, for that matter, is the area of practice. For what does it matter if you have all knowledge because you've been a good hearer and claim to be loving if there is no action which proceeds from that posture? Again, we're reminded of Jesus' statement, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Nah, James said, be a doer. Now I imagine after James finished exhorting folks to be a doer in verses 22 through 25, he probably thought to himself, wait a minute. Human nature is such that if I tell my brothers and sisters to be a doer and don't provide any sort of apostolic guidance concerning what that looks like or does not look like, they might head on down the road of religiosity, baptizing certain behaviors that are not acceptable as good while neglecting to do those things that they should be doing and that are essentially a part of their calling as God's hand in his feet. And so I imagine with that in mind, James in verses 26 and 27 provided his readers with what amounted to three essential pillars of Christian practice. He ends this book that opens and is walking along the course of ethics with three pillars of Christian practice. First, a subdued tongue. And second, caring for the needy. And third, guarding oneself against worldly influence. The first essential pillar of true piety uh, or practice is subdued as a subdued tongue. Look at verse 26. James says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Now, you might have noticed that I use the words true piety to introduce the first pillar. Well, the reason I did so was because those words, true piety, are in contrast to the Greek word that's translated as religious here in verse 26. This word, as defined by the word study dictionary, is used to refer to the diligent performer of divinely ascribed duties of outward service to God. God has prescribed those external things that are to be done in order in service to him. But true devotion to him goes deeper than the external things that we do. Here we should be reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew 15, 6, as he quoted Isaiah saying, This people honored me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. James is saying you can have all sorts of outward appearances of fidelity to God. You can attend church service weekly. You can actively go to Sunday school, volunteer to help and participate in multiple ministry activities. You can do all the stuff that's externally prescribed. But the true acid test of whether or not those activities are born of God's spirit, for it is God who works in you, both to do, to will, and to work for his good pleasure. Those things are seen through the, the lens of the fruit, a fruit of the spirit, self-control, and particularly as it relates to one's tongue. He then goes on to use the imagery of a horse's bridle as the required tool to subdue one's tongue. This would have immediately caused the readers of his day to entertain a picture 
of the most powerful source of transport known to man at that time, a horse. Even today in our age, a unit of measurement of power or the rate at which work is done in reference to the output of engines or motors is referred to as what? Horsepower. I don't want to dig into this issue of the tongue too deeply this evening because James is going to go deeply into this in chapter 3. But the mere fact that this is an ongoing emphasis on this particular issue of the tongue should tell us how much attention we should give to what James is communicating to us. And that is one's inability to control one's tongue is a surefire indicator that all the external activities that one is engaged in having little spiritual impact on one inner being. Commenting on the confidence we often place on our external acts, John MacArthur wrote, the person who trusts in those outward things sooner or later will expose his or her faithlessness with his or her mouth because he or she or he does not have the inner power to bridle their tongue Trusting in those things to please God and receive his or her blessings are deceptive and worthless. Even a ritual or liturgy, if it's biblical in its wording, it's futile as pagan idolatry unless the heart is right with God. A corrupt and unholy heart eventually will be exposed by corrupt and unholy speech. Folks, that's why we pray that our worship and our service to God would be in spirit and in truth. That is with sincerity of heart, according to the dictates of God's word. Absent of that, we descend, we, all of us, no matter who we are, we descend into gossip, maligning others, backbiting. Instead of being clothed in the righteousness of Christ and the whole armor of God that's in Ephesians, we find ourselves clothed with the spirit of criticism and armed with the weapon of a wayward tongue. Commenting on that item of clothing, that wayward tongue, Roger Ellsworth wrote, how very easy it is for us to fall into this trap. Someone sings and we find fault. Someone preaches and we find fault. Someone teaches a class and we find fault. Whatever the area is, we can find a way to find fault. And now I'm pretty sure Ellsworth is not saying that we should never discern those things that are wrong and address them, but rather utilizing the tongue in ways that are destructive and that tears down instead of being constructed and building up. If it's not building up more than it's tearing down, then it is sinful and indicative of a fate that might not be genuine. At this point, I think it's important that I share what another scholar wrote concerning this. He wrote, I want to emphasize that James is talking about what is habitually true of all of us. Every child of God speaks inappropriately from time to time. James is not talking about that which is occasionally true of us, but rather that which is continually true of us. Let the word go out loud and clear, he said, continuing in sin, gossiping, backbiting, and all those things of the tongue, it, it, continuing that perpetually, perpetually and continually is evidence that we have never been saved. He, like James and like Jesus, I might add, is contending that the person who possesses a tongue that cannot be controlled possesses a tongue that's destructive. 
That person needs to heed Paul's word found in 2 Corinthians 13.5. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? Think about that God, Jesus, left and gave us his spirit. And now the fruit of his spirit is supposed to be manifesting in and through us. We're supposed to be growing from one level of glory to another level of glory. We're being sanctified. But all but no, there's no fruit, no evidence to show that because that which comes out of our mouth is continually destructive. And he's saying, therefore, that if a person is in that vein, then their outward religious practices are hollow. They mean nothing. So the first pillar of our practice is a subdued tongue. We should exert energy, utilize the wisdom that God has given us. Now the second pillar is caring for the needy. Look at the first half of verse 27. It reads, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their afflictions. Brothers and sisters, if someone were to pose this question to you, name one issue that is so dear to God's heart that it's emblazoned across the entire orb of Scripture over and over and over again. It is so dear to God's heart that everywhere you look, Throughout scripture, you'll find one verse after another, passage after another, that addresses it. Well, there's actually a few things you could say that about. But you would be absolutely right if you were to say the second pillar that I'm talking about. Caring for the needy. Brothers and sisters, it is abundantly clear how God feels about this issue. Scripture after scripture, verse after verse. I started off trying to count the number of verses and stopped at 83. But then after realizing again just how much it was, I decided to use Jesus' model to provide a sample. And by saying Jesus' model, I'm saying in Luke 24, Jesus said that the, the law, the Psalms, and the prophets were all about him. So utilizing those three divisions of scripture we hear from Deuteronomy, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. And the widow who are within your town shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands that you do. From the Psalms we hear, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. And then for he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. And again, I've stated and emphasized the fact that God, Jesus, is sitting on the right-hand side of the Father. And so when he talks about helper, who is his helper? Who are the hands and feet? Of our Lord. It is us. He works through us, his hands and his feet. And then for the prophets we hear, is not this the fast that I chose? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? They were fasting and acting religious and, and, and pious in their, all their ways. And Jesus, God is here saying, listen, that's a bunch of mess if your heart is not right and is not showing up in the fact that you are taking care of the homeless poor. Bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him. And finally, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. Scripture after scripture Verse after verse, if there ever was an issue where God could say, I told you so, 
over and over and over again because it meant that much to him and he wanted the same to be said of you, of me. That is, it meant that much to us, it would be this issue. And as one would suspect, since it is the work of God's spirit, the same heart and sentiment has been reflected throughout the ages by those whom God used mightily in building his church. Take Charles Spurgeon, for instance. In a sermon he delivered in London in 1869, he said, A, <clears throat> a church in London which does not exist to do God good in the slums and dens and kennels of the city is a church that has no reason to justify its longer existing. A church that does not exist to take the side of the poor, to denounce injustice, and to hold up righteousness is a church that has no right to be. Just recently, in one of our uh, morning services, we read about the poor widow in 2 Kings chapter 4. It was noted that the reason that God had to intervene in that widow's life and provide for her the oil that would sustain her quality of life was because the people of God who were supposed to be providing according to God's word in the Pentateuch were not providing for her. And so God had to intervene. And it was a sign of their apostasy. It was a sign that they had turned their back against God and they had turned inward so they themselves were their own gods. And now they engaged in dealing with all those false gods around them. And those gods require nothing except that you would take care of those false gods. So just as God has prescribed for them in his word, it was an ultimate sign of apostasy that they turned away. James was well aware of this propensity for the human heart to turn inward, deceptively justifying that turn by outward acts of selective and that's the key word here, selective external religious activity. Oh, I'll do this. Oh, I'll do that. It don't cost me much to do this. It don't cost me much to do that. I don't have to put myself out much to do this. So I'll do those things. I'll do those things that make me feel good. But when it comes to doing those things that might make me a little bit uncomfortable, be in an environment that might make me uncomfortable, being around someone else that would make me uncomfortable, I don't know if I'm willing to do that. James was well aware of that. One main way that that shows up in our life is the sin of partiality. That aspect of this issue will be covered more in depth next week. But suffice to say, brothers and sisters, James is saying this is where the rubber meets the road. Are you more inclined to help those who are able to return the favor or has the needle of your heart moved towards helping those who absolutely cannot pay you back, cannot raise your reputation cachet, and your engagement with them might even leave you with a scarred memory? Are you willing to help because God has called you to help? James is saying that's when you're truly in the ambassadorial race for Christ, truly being his hands and feet, when you're reaching out to those who cannot help themselves and who will not be able to repay you, when you're reaching out, here I think, it might be instructive for me to say that one size does not fit all. Listen, listen to this closely, okay? One size does not fit all. We're not all gifted in the same way. We're not all called to labor in the same exact 
spheres of influence. Not everyone is going to be organically connected to the places and people who are most needy in society. But the church as a whole should reflect the nature and tenor of what James is saying. And those who are at ground zero should be supported by the gifts and talents of those whose gifts better equip them to be eyes and maybe not hands. And so I would say to you, if I had to argue on behalf, provide an apologetic in this church, I would tell you, grab hold of our bulletin and look at all the services and missionaries and the, the, the organizations that we support in Jackson and other areas that are meeting the needs of the most poor among us. We have a missionary, Cheryl, who is a part of the city that has become more and more dangerous. And the children, the little young ladies that she's serving is something else. Again, they cannot give her back anything, but she's serving out of a pure heart for God. And so the same thing can be said about many who are serving in sunbeams and, and Moses basket and other areas. But all of us have to examine ourselves and ask ourselves, am I just doing those things that are external just to seem like I'm pleasing God? Or is my heart really reaching out to those who are needy? Am I involved in the business either directly or through the church or whatever case might be? of serving those who are most needy around us. Having said that, there is something that all of us need to give equal heed to. All of us not equally gifted, all of us not going to be engaged at the same level, but there's something that all of us need to give equal heed to. And that is James' third essential pillar of Christian practice, guarding oneself against worldly influence. Look at verse 27. When connected to the first part of the verse, it reads, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to keep oneself unstained from the world. The world as defined in this verse is not that which God created and called very good, but the ungodly spiritual systems of philosophy, morals, and values. It's an orb of belief and practice, morals, and values that are completely contrary to that which is reflective of the covenant God who calls us his own. He is holy and has called us to be like he is. It is that realm of worldly living and thinking that we were drawn out of. We were taken out of that or rescued from it or as Paul again reminds us in Ephesians 2, you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That was our realm of practice. Born out of minds that were shaped by the philosophies, morals, and values of this world. But then by and through God's grace, those daily mercies that are renewed every day and a love that knows no bounds, he rescued us. God rescued us and blessed us, his new creations, with the privilege. It is a privilege to represent him, being his ambassadors, members of a holy nation, a royal priesthood, that is what he calls us. We were taken out 
of the realm of darkness and placed in a new one. And thus we hear now that we're in this new realm. We have to be nurtured. Why? Because we start off as babes in Christ. So we came out of a different world and now we hear do not be conformed to this world. To the old realm that you came out of. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Be changed. Metamorphosis. Be changed by the renewing of your mind. How? Through the word of God. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God. You know the word of God. Learn the word of God. Know what it is that God has required of us. Know that which God calls good. That which God calls righteous. That which God calls upright. And engage in those things. Meditate on those things. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is what? Good and acceptable and perfect to who? God. He is the one that sets the standard. He is the one that has called us. He is the one that gave his only begotten son out of the abundance of his love for us. And so now he has called us again to be ambassadors, to represent him. Now, brothers and sisters, in my estimation, this keeping of oneself from the influence of the world is much more difficult to accomplish now than it's ever been in my lifetime. The Bible was taken out of schools when I was two years old. And then later on, prayer was taken out of uh, this public schools and so on and so forth in the year 2000. The removal from the public square, however, was indicative of a much broader issue. The failure of Christ's church to be in the world, but not of it. To more broadly demonstrate the love of Christ across all ethnic persuasions. To take its place in the marketplace of ideas as the moral conscience of the family and the civil magistrate. So today we stand with a society because the church shrunk back, we stand with a society that asserts there is no difference between a man and a woman. A man can participate in a woman's sporting event and actually win man of the year, woman of the year rather, a man can. You have pastors that identify, can identify and advocate for others to call themselves gay Christians. Doesn't matter what the scripture says, that the scripture says. It doesn't matter that the scripture says that the wicked borrow and does not repay. Or the borrower is slave to the lender. We are standing in a time when we're, death is off the chain. Those who are in charge, brothers and sisters, I could go on and on and on. But hear me, those are stained philosophies, morals, and values. James is saying we should not, cannot, be numbered among those who embrace those things. Our minds are supposed to be renewed. We cannot embrace those things. They are of the world and not the things that a renewed mind can ever be comfortable with. Our hearts, butchered by the love of Christ, should be about the things of God, his kingdom, occupied with a desire to walk in the beauty of holiness for his name's sake. Concern for the well-being of the souls who are in need of being cared for and who need to be rescued by the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ.
The Bible calls us salt and light. Now, those of you who are great cooks, I'm not a great cook. I can cook water real good. But if you have salt in this hand and you have meat in this hand, salt is supposed to be a preservative. Is that correct, John Williams? It's supposed to favor it and do all the things right. But if the salt never touches the meat, can it affect it? If it stays over here and goes that way, the meat will do what? Stay over here and get rotten. We are called then to engage it but to remain salt. We are called to go into darkness but remain light. That is what we're called to do. That is who we are. And we have to be who we are, who God has called us to. And our Lord is saying, if you are his, these are the things that you should be about. This is how you should clothe yourself. He gave his life. He sacrificed all and has sent us out to love our neighbors, no matter who they are, how they look, how they think, to love them, but not to become like them, but to influence them for the glory of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is through our being holy and walking in the beauty of holiness and looking like Christ, reflecting his glory and speaking the truth in love that God will then honor and use us to reach those whom he has called his own and that are lost in the highways and byways. This is our mission. This is what he's called us to. And these are the things that you're going to hear James continue to home, to continue to press as he goes through the rest of this book. And so if he's pressing these things through the rest of this book, that tells us that we need to bow our heads before our God and ask him to give us hearts and minds to embrace who we should be, what this is saying, and give us by the power of his spirit the ability to walk in these things all to the praise of his glory. Amen? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. You drew us from darkness. For your word tells us that even while we were sinners, you loved us and you gave yourself for us. But you didn't call us so that we might come and stay in darkness. But you called us that we might live in you and that we might be light and that we might touch those who are around us in our spheres of influence, that we might speak your truth, that we might exhibit, demonstrate the love that you have and the love that you had for the Father and the Father you had for the Son and the Holy Spirit. You've drawn us into that orb of love and now you've given us, enabled us by your Spirit to demonstrate that love to those who cannot return anything to us. We thank you for the opportunities that you've given this church and us individually to even reach folks like that now and ask that you would continue to guide us and to keep us and to give us the resources to reach out to those in our community, to reach out to those who are less in terms of the things that they have, in the lower socioeconomic brackets, those who are lost without you. We pray that you again would open doors for us to reach folks, to take care of folks, so that they might see you for all that you are, a God who loves the poor, a God who cares, and a God who takes care of those whom he's created in his image for his purposes. 
Bless us, we pray, as we help others. And also, we pray that you would move on their hearts and cause them to see Christ and accept him. For that is truly the greatest gift that anyone could ever have, that they would know Jesus Christ. It is today your praise and your glory that we pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen.